each one of us. Now, as he continues on, Paul begins to focus on how it's possible for, for folks within the church to, to kind of come to that place of arrogance in our life and, and that holier-than-thou attitude that, that, that sometimes finds its way into our life. And he identifies four things that Paul says, here's, here's the problem. The reason that you are without excuse and the reason that you're going to face the wrath of God, you see, it's not just them out there that are facing the wrath of God, but bad news is all of us do. All, he's going he's gonna to end this entire section by saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all means all of us, right? So he says, I want you to understand the bad news is all of us have sinned. All of us are separated from God. All of us are in a situation that we cannot fix. You can't, you can't get out of the mess you're in. There, there's the bad news. We need a savior. And he helps us understand how even in religious circles we find ourselves in that bad place. And he says there are four things that you have a tendency to put your security in that, that brings you to that spot. Four things that you trust in. Um, and you seek that security in all the wrong places. With that in mind, let's look together at chapter 2, begin with verse uh, 17, and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. I don't know if we'll make it all the way there. It just depends on how fast you listen, if we're able to do that. But if you bear the name Jew, he says in verse 17, and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though you break the law, do you dishonor God? And, and the, the question that he asks there is, is rhetorical, and the answer is implied. Yes, you dishonor God. For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, is, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, in that passage of scripture, Paul kind of focuses his attention on the, the second group of people that are a part of the church in Rome. There, there were two groups of people within the church. One was uh, folks that kind of came from a Gentile background. Many of them pagan, had no religious understanding at all. And then there were some within the church who came from a Jewish background, having grown up in Judaism, having come to faith in Christ and, and turned into Christianity. They were holding on to many of those practices of Judaism. And, uh, and, and somehow they felt themselves better than those Gentile believers that were a part of the church. And so Paul begins to focus in on them and, and, and he says the, the reason we can have that arrogant attitude is because we, we place our confidence or our security in the wrong place. And he identifies four areas that I think are still very much alive for us today. First of all, Paul says, hey, you're you have placed your security, number one, in your heritage. He says, if you, I, I could translate that first verse, verse five, that we, uh, or verse one, that we read, uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, that we read together. But if you bear the name Jew, I could translate it this way. If you call yourself a Jew. Now, this is how we can make it apply to us today. Paul would say this to you. If you call yourself a Christian, Okay, You identify and say, I am a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, Paul is saying, if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Christian, so what was happening is that many of these people in the church at Rome were calling themselves Jews and they were claiming that they had some special privilege because of their heritage. Because of the fact that I was born a Jew, because I am one of God's chosen people, because I am a part of, uh, of Israel, and Jesus was God's gift to the world and came through the nation of Israel as a result of my heritage, having been born a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, part of God's chosen people, in their mind, what that meant was, I am exempt from judgment. I, you, you can't touch me because I'm a Jew. And so I am the favored people of God. And, and, and like many people who call themselves Christian today, I, I think the same idea is present. There are many in our world, and certainly most in this room, who would, would call themselves Christians. And in and, and, and our world today, in America today, though the number is, is actually on decline of the number of people who call themselves Christians, about 60%, 65% of the people that are, um, are, are citizens of the United States would say that we are Christian. Now, there's a recent poll that's just come out uh, that is recognizing that that number is in fast decline. The fastest growing group today are the nuns. 
those that would say uh, of religious affiliation, I have none. That's the fastest growing group within America today. And the projection is probably around 2035, uh, Christians will be in the minority today. The nuns will be the major group among us. But even though that's the case, there are many that are here today and in our world today that claim to be Christian and your security is in the fact that I'm a Christian. And so you can ask a person, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, sure. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a Christian. Now, do, do you read the Bible? Do you know what God says? Have you committed your life to Christ? Well, no, but, but I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I think since I declare that I am a Christian, I am exempt from the judgment of God somehow. God is going to allow me to go to heaven simply because I claim to be a Christian. Some believe that, that the term Christian is synonymous with being an American. In fact, right now, and that probably will change as those numbers decline, our motto is, in God we trust. We are a Christian nation. So if you're born in America, then you're a Christian. I mean, it's a Christian nation. It's not a Muslim nation or an, uh, an Islamic nation. It's a Christian nation. So if you're born here, you are a Christian. And there are many people who would say, I'm a Christian simply because I'm an American. Or it may be that you'll carry it one step further and say, I'm a Christian because I was born to a Christian family. I wasn't born in a Muslim family. I wasn't born into a, uh, to a, to a, to a Buddhist family. I was born into a Christian family. And so why am I a Christian? Because mom and dad are Christians, because my grandparents are Christians. And as a result of being born into a Christian family, I am Christian. And there are many people who their security, their confidence that when they die, they're going to heaven is wrapped up in the simple phrase, I believe that I'm a Christian. And, and there are all kinds of reasons why we believe that. I'm a Christian because I was born here into a Christian family, because I'm American, because I claim to be a Christian. I believe in Jesus. It might be that you believe that you are a Christian because you prayed a certain prayer at some revival service somewhere, or, or, or maybe your grandma has a faith that, that you hold to, and because of her commitment to Christ and, and, and your grandparents' commitment to Christ, you are committed to Christ. It may be because you go to church. You're a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you pray. You're a Christian because you've been baptized. Maybe you were baptized as a child. And you would say, I'm a Christian because I was baptized when I was born. My parents took me as a child. And I was baptized. And as a result of that, I am a Christian. And so this is what Paul is saying. To those of you that are claiming that you're going to heaven because you are Jews, and, and to interpret it for us today, to those who would claim that they're going to heaven because they say they are a Christian, here Paul says, none of these things makes you justified before God. The word justify, you remember what I told you last week? The word justify is a, is, is a religious term that literally means just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified before God means that God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. And I want to tell you something. I can claim to be a Christian and God's going to say, that's not going to justify you. I'm not going to look at you just as if you have never sinned because you claim to be a Christian or because you say that you are a Jew. Your heritage does not provide justification for you. And then Paul identifies a second thing that they hold to. 
Many of them hold to the fact that, okay, well, it's my heritage, but he also alludes to the fact in verse 17 and 18, he, he now kind of focuses on the second thing that provides security for them when he says it's their knowledge of Scripture. Because they had been instructed in the law, because they had grown up understanding the things of God, all their life they had been taught the Word of God. And because they knew the Bible, they somehow believed that their knowledge of Scripture would magically provide for them justification before God. And Paul comes on the scene to say, here's the problem, guys. The problem is the knowledge that you have of the Word never made it from your head to your heart. Yeah, you've got a head knowledge of truth. You know it. But it never made its way to the heart. Now, I think there's a strong word for us here today as Baptists because Baptists have boasted for many years that we are a people of the book. Oh, we know the book. Baptist people go to more Bible studies than any people I have ever known. I mean, it's crazy how many Bible studies that we're a part of. We come on Sunday morning, we're a part of Bible study. And we got another one, that's not enough. We come on Wednesday night, we got a Bible study. And then we got Thursday morning Bible study. And then some of you have Wednesday morning Bible study. And we're just studying the Bible over and over and over and over again. And we have more knowledge of the Word of God than any. Listen, Baptist people know the Word of God. I grew up in a Baptist home, went to vacation Bible school. I went to all kinds of things. I knew, listen, you don't want to get into a debate theologically with a Baptist. They know the answers. We have been drilled with the answers of the truth. And here's the problem. Many of us think we are mature Christians because of what we know. Because I know the Bible, I'm mature. And because I know the Bible and you don't know the Bible, guess what? Then I'm superior to you. And that's what was happening in the church here at Rome. And Paul says here, it is a reflection of, of the knowledge that you have, but it's a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge. You have never come to understand that the full purpose of knowing the word of God is that you might glorify God, listen to this, by doing, not by knowing we know the word so that we can be obedient to it and live it out. And it's in the living out of the word of God in our daily life that we glorify God. It's not in passing a test. It's not in knowledge. It's not in making the teaching of the scriptures central. And we make the, the Bible the, the most. And, and what happened was the Jews were, were boasting, as he says here in the text, boasting in God. Ultimately, they were boasting in the knowledge they had of God, and they were saying, because we know stuff, we're better than everybody else, because we know the truth. We are separated from all others. And Paul says, you know what? Your knowledge does not justify you before God. It's not your knowledge of the scripture that God's going to look at that allows you to go to heaven. And you're not going to take a test when you die and you got to pass a biblical exam before you go to heaven. You can know all this stuff and not have a relationship with God. And that's what 
Paul is getting at. He's simply saying to you, listen, some of you think because of your growing up, everything's good. Some of you think because you know stuff, everything's good. And he says, here's the bad news. You are a sinner separated from God and your heritage can't save you and your knowledge can't save you. And then he goes one step further. And he says, and not only is it true that your heritage can't save you and your knowledge can't save you, he said your words can't save you. In verse 17, all the way down, down in 20, confident of yourself as a guide to the blind and a light to those that are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. He, he now kind of looks to what they do with that knowledge. So you've got all this knowledge and he says, you are arrogant enough to think that because you know stuff, even though you're not living it, you can teach it to others. And you become a teacher of the law. And we're gonna lead Bible studies. We're not living it, and we're not talking about living it out in our life. But oh, I can teach you what it says. I've learned Greek. I've learned Hebrew. I've, I've learned all of the ins. I mean, I've taken some seminary classes to really get to the bottom of understanding the Word of God. And as a result of that, I'm going to teach everybody else. And, and, and Paul says, and just because you're a teacher of the Word, you think you're okay with God? You've heard the old saying, and, and, and hang with me, don't give up. You've heard the old saying that those who can do and those who can't teach, you've heard that before. It's not necessarily true. We know that there are many capable teachers that, that are leading, and I have great respect for anyone in the teaching field. My, my daughter-in-laws are, are, are teachers. But I think what Paul is saying in the text before us, we could change that up a little bit. He is simply saying this, those who will do and those who won't teach. Those who do live it out. But, but here's the problem. You're not living it out, but you're teaching other people as if you are an authority on the word of God. And you know the truth. And you think because you're a teacher and because you know stuff and because you're sharing light and because you've got all this intellect that you are making available and known to other people, you're arrogant enough to think that you are qualified to teach the law even though you're not applying that law that you know to your own life. Now, I want to tell you something. That's a powerful word for me as a pastor, right? Because I'm a teacher. And, and I mean, it just behooves me every every time I preach to say, God, hold me accountable for what I teach. It's so important that I, that I live this out and, I, and I'm not perfect at it. I'm not good at it. I'm, I'm kind of hammering through the process and I'm not talking about the fact that we have to be perfect and living it out. I've told you before, it's not the perfection of our life, it's the direction of our life. I'm not perfect. But if the direction of my life, whenever I mess up and whenever I fail, is always come back to God in repentance and is always default back to say, I failed, help me, fill me with your spirit, bring me back, teach me. So every teacher, pastor included, these are words of indictment that Paul offers to say, don't you be so arrogant as to think because you know something 
that you are going to be judged differently. I told the group Wednesday night, um, when I was growing up, well, after I got grown and gone, um, my dad never called. We, that was before cell phones. He had the phone on the wall, but he never called me. Uh, if he ever called you, you knew something was wrong. But we called him. Uh, you know, my brother and I would call him on a regular basis and check on him after mom died. And, and um, when I was working on my doctor's degree, it was the only time in my entire life after having moved out, got married, moved away, it was the only time that my dad ever called me. And after I began to work on my doctor's degree, my first week working, uh, being accepted in the doctoral program, my dad called me. And I answered the phone. I'm thinking something's wrong. And he says to me, well, you started your doctoral work. And I said, yeah, I started class this week. He said, uh, you know what a doctor's degree is, don't you? And I said, well, what? He said, it's just another curl in the pig's tail. You're still a pig. And he hung up. That was it. That was the conversation. And the next week, he calls me again. And I answer the phone this time. You know what he said? You know what a doctor's degree is, don't you? Just another curl in the pig's tail. You still a pig. And he called me almost every week through the entire process of getting my doctor's degree. And when I graduated from New Orleans and family went, it was a big day. You know, they hood you and all this kind of stuff. And the pomp and circumstance, my dad was there. It was a proud moment. Dad's there. Mom's in heaven at that time. But, but dad's there and it's a proud moment. And I know he's proud of me and, and, and my accomplishment. And you just kind of swelled up there for a moment, you know, because boy, I got all the regalia on and I'm there. We go outside to take pictures with the family. And, uh, and so, immediately tangent like hey first of all let's get a picture with you and your dad you know and then with you and your dad and your brother let's get one with you and your dad and so we're standing there together and just before she clicks the picture he leans over in my ear and he says you're still a pig <laughs> but you know what he was doing right he was doing what Paul's doing he was saying it's not the knowledge that you gain that makes you right with God it's got to go from here to the heart. And so he says, don't, don't be so arrogant. But I want to say this to you because it's easy for you to look up there and say, well, yeah, I know. Boy, I'm glad God didn't call me to be a pastor and the responsibility of teaching other people. But you know the same is true for you, right? Because it's hard for you to talk the talk and walk the walk. And Paul says if you talk the talk and don't walk the walk, don't think that because you can talk the talk, everything's okay. And then, then the fourth thing that he goes to. He says not only, oh, and, and by the way, I, I need to hit this. <laughs> He's ultimately saying this, beware not to make the word of God a basis for boasting. But instead, let me say this to you because you're going to think that I'm, 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 I'm putting you down for your knowledge of the scripture and your study of the Bible and all the Bible studies you've been to. Here's what you've got to do if you know the word of God. Never let your knowledge of the word of God become something that we boast about. Never let it become a basis for boasting, but let it become a basis for blessing. The knowledge that we have from the, from, from the word of God can be a blessing to other people that don't know it. 
And we don't give it in a boasting fashion, but we share that it might bless them and, and, and that they might come to know God and love him and experience the grace and the mercy that we have. And so ultimately, and, and in fact, Paul gives two boy, critical comments here in, in the midst of it when he just covers these three. He stops right in the middle of it and he says, because I want to tell you something, if you don't do that, you dishonor God. You mock God. Because you think you're here. You think everything's right with you and God. And you mock God. And, he, and then he says this. And you block unbelievers from coming to Christ. If you trust in your heritage, if you trust in your words, if you, if you trust in your biblical knowledge and, and you lord it over other people and, and you beat them down in it, you will literally drive them away from God rather than bringing them to him. You know, I, I, I love what one atheist said on one occasion. He said that the, the number one deterrent among many people who end up embracing atheism is Christians. It's because of the inconsistency in us that they reject everything we're about. And that's why Paul says, here's bad news. Just calling yourself a Christian and just knowing these things doesn't do it. But then he, he finally hits the fourth one. And, um, and he says this in verse 25 and following. He says, the, 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 the final thing that you guys seem to put your faith and trust in is, are, are rituals. If you can't depend on your heritage and you can't depend on your knowledge and you can't depend on your word, well, <clears throat> we've got one more option. We're circumcised. Praise God, as a Jew, we've gone through circumcision, so everything is good. If I can't trust heritage, if I can't trust knowledge, if I can't trust the word, I, then, well, I, at least I, I'm, I'm, I'm circumcised. Now, now, the reason they believe that was this. They were taught, Jews were taught by rabbis that the physical act of circumcision was their ticket to heaven. They were literally taught that. They were told that no circumcised man will go to hell, period. Some rabbis even taught this, that Abraham set up a table at the door of hell to make sure that no circumcised Man, no Jew, circumcised man, would ever enter into hell. Now, they were taught that from the time they were little, so no wonder they believed that circumcision was, was somehow uh, an ace in the hole, if you can, that, that guarantees that I'm going to heaven, that it saves me from hell. But they'd lost sight of the fact that circumcision was a symbol that gave meaning to a relationship they had with God. That it was a symbol that you are in relationship, in covenant relationship with God. It, 
it, it, it was a symbol. The ritual had become more important than the relationships. And when rituals become more important than the relationship they are to point to, we, we've lost it. In fact, in verse 25, he says that circumcision has, has value if you're obedient. If you're obedient, it has value. There's, it, God gave it to you. Now, I know immediately we're thinking, okay, this is the tough part of Romans and the reasons the tough parts because this doesn't have anything to do with me. So this really isn't about me. But you know what? We have a lot of our own rituals, don't we? <laughs> that we hold on to. And, and I want to tell you something. Here's a litmus test for rituals. Rituals, if God gives them, they're good. If he doesn't, well, not so much. And some of these God gave. I mean, when we look at the Old Testament, God gave some of these rituals. Um, circumcision was certainly one of them. Passover and the other feast were rituals that God gave his people. Sacrifice was a ritual God gave to his people. But over time, they began to adopt a bunch of rituals that he didn't give them. In biblical times, Hanukkah is not, that's not a ritual that God gave them. Many of the laws that they applied to their lives and their rules and regulations that they lived by, God didn't give. He said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they came up with all these rules and regulations on what you can do and on the Sabbath day and what, what constitutes work and all of those challenges. And, and it became a burden to them. God never said that. What are some of the rituals that we have today? In fact, let me ask you this. What are the rituals that God gave to us in the New Testament? Are there any rituals that God gave us? Yeah, he, he gave us baptism. And he gave us the Lord's Supper. Honestly, I believe that baptism actually takes the place of circumcision. Because baptism is a symbol of a relationship we have with God. That's what circumcision was. It was a symbol of a relationship that we have with God. Uh, the Lord's Supper, I think, actually takes the place of the Passover. Because the Passover looked back at a time when God delivered the nation of Israel, looking forward to the time when the Savior would come. The Lord's Supper is instituted a new covenant, Jesus said, as he celebrated that Passover meal to say it takes on a new meaning now. You're looking back at my death on the cross as a sacrifice made for you and the ultimate future coming of the Lord. Those are, those are two rituals that God gives us in the New Testament that we're to have. But let me ask you this. What about rituals that we celebrate today that are not given by God? Do you know any of those? How about Christmas? It's not from God. He didn't say you had to do that. How about Easter? Isn't it funny that the two biggest holidays in the church, God didn't come up with those. Easter is not something that God instituted in the other holidays. I mean, if you go and look at religion all the way down, the confession of our sins to a priest, God didn't do that. Rosary beads, God didn't do that. It's not anywhere in Scripture. And I'm not saying that all rituals are wrong, provided that they point us back to a relationship. But when they don't point us to a relationship, they stand on their own and they become this thing that we look to that, that somehow offers salvation for me. When 
God gives us a ritual and they are accompanied by obedience. They point to God and they're valuable. But accompanied by no obedience, they become useless. So the rituals have no meaning unless they are accompanied by genuine faith in God. And so Paul closes his chapter here and says, hey guys, I've got bad news for you. You think you're going to heaven because of your heritage. You're not. You think you're going to heaven because of your knowledge. You're not. You think you're going to heaven because you are a teacher of the word. You're not. And you think you're going to heaven because of these rituals that you keep. And you're not. In fact, in the closing words of this text, Paul says, he says, here, here, are, here are the four traits of a real Jew. You focus on the inward, not the outward. You focus on the heart and not the flesh. You focus on the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And you seek God's praise, not man's praise. So it brings us to this simple question today. What are you trusting in? If I were to ask you this question today, if you were to die today, and you were to stand before God and he was to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? What's your answer? Why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer? Well, I'm a Christian. I went to church. I've been baptized. No. Jesus answered the question for us when talking about heaven and the fact that he would come again to receive his disciples to himself. Thomas finally asked the question, Lord, where are you going and how do we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way. You see, the answer to the bad news is Jesus. And the only hope that we have of stepping into eternity is Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. Every one of you are going to step into eternity. And the most important question you'll ever answer is what you do with Jesus today. Because that's all eternity. You, listen, life is short, buddy. But when you die, that's forever. And so the question is, where do you place your trust if you're here today and you're trusting in any of these things, Paul says, I've got bad news for you. But if you're trusting in Jesus, well, there's the good news. And today you can place your faith and trust in Jesus. I'm going to pray for you and we'll give you an opportunity to do just that. To put your faith and trust in Jesus. To simply say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I get it. I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do to fix this. But I believe, Jesus, you came and you lived and you died and you fixed it. And I'm going to ask you to come into my life, forgive me of my sins. I'm going to give you my life. And in doing that, you become God's child in relationship with him and can have heaven as your home. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. There are people in this room today who have trusted in baptism, trusted in a prayer, trusted in their family, trusted in heritage. They've put their security in all the wrong places. And today we've discovered there's only one place we can be secure. 
And that's in you, Jesus. So for any in this room who have never accepted you, any that are listening that have never accepted you, may this be the moment of decision for them that they would say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I ask you to forgive me. Come into my life. And Father, if they pray that prayer, ask God that you will forgive them. Come into their heart as they yield their life to you. They become yours, entering into a relationship with you. And for those of us in this room that do know you, but have somehow slipped into that position where we find security in anything else, may we return today. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry, send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.